Welcome to HemeCast. I'm Deborah Pollard, Director of Education for HemeNet, and today we are going to be talking about women and girls with bleeding disorders following the recent publication of the uh, Principles of Care. So thank you very much for joining us and today I'm really pleased to be joined by some very eminent members of the haemophilia and bleeding disorders community who I've worked closely with and I'm going to hand over to them to introduce themselves and I'm going to start with Professor Razan Abdul-Qadir who is my friend and colleague. Razan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you very much, Deborah. Uh, so I'm Rezan Abdul Qadir. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist, and uh, we worked together for so many years at the Royal Free Hospital. Uh, we really, about 20 years ago, set up the um, women clinic, and I think that was the beginning of the idea of um, comprehensive care for women. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to turn to Dr. Karin Van Garland. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the driving force behind the principles of care for women? I'm not sure if I'm the driving force myself, <laughs> but I'm a, an adult hematologist. I work in the Netherlands in the Van Krevat Clinic. That's uh, one of the largest hemophilia treatment center in, centers in Europe. And I'm concerned with the women and bleeding disorders in our Hemophilia Treatment Center, and I'm also the chair of the uh, European Association of Hemophilia and Allied Disorders, the EHAD uh, Women's Committee, and uh, we initiated with this committee this project to uh, draft the principles of care for women with bleeding disorders, and uh, our aim is to improve uh, diagnosis and care for women with bleeding disorders, uh, which lags behind, as we all know. Thank you, Karen, and I would say the reason I called you to the driving force was because you kept us all to task. Those of us that were involved in the drafting of the principles of care for women with women and girls with bleeding disorders, I have to say the quickest piece of work I think that's ever been completed, and that was largely down to your really, really good organisational skills. Thank you. And finally, I'd like to introduce Naya Skal-Rasmussen. Um, Naya is a member of the bleeding disorders community and most recently, I believe Naya, you've been appointed to a position at the European Haemophilia Consortium. Would you like to tell us more? Yes, and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, my name is Naya Skol Rasmussen. I am from Denmark um, and I've been a part of the European Haemophilia Consortium for as a steering committee member for five years, uh, almost five years, and now I recently re uh, changed position into the more operational team to drive forward a new advocacy initiative that is called the Think Tank, which we hope can change the way the patient community has been helping driving change in the bleeding disorder community at a broad, a broad scale. So I have a, a background as a patient and a patient advocate for more than 10, 15 years, mainly from Denmark, but also at the European level. And now it's really exciting to be a part of a think tank initiative, uh, because I think that could really move forward something that we haven't succeeded with doing before, because it's very much based on more collab collaborative 
collaborative work compared to working parallel in each of our sectors. And I think just the process that I also was lucky to be involved in with the principles of care for women as a patient representative shows that there is a huge gain from working together and co-create from the beginning instead of inviting people only to advise along the way or when you're almost done with your work but actually as a starting point saying okay we all have this common goal that we want to change something so what what can we do in collaboration to get there that makes sense for all of us um, so i think that actually is a, is a good example of, of of what i'm gonna work with for the next many years hopefully Great. Well, we wish you luck with that. That sounds a real challenge. Um, Karen, I'm going to start with you. And what I want to know is what you think, as a haematologist, the main barriers are for diagnosis of women with bleeding disorders. We, we've seen and we've heard a lot, not just with the principles of care documents, um, but throughout recent conferences, and in fact, in the work that Rizan has published over many, many years, that women with bleeding disorders tend to struggle for a diagnosis, come late to diagnosis. What do you think the barriers are as a haematologist for diagnosing women? I'm not sure if the barrier is at the hematologist because that's uh, when a woman gets a referral for a blood clot testing for, for bleed, testing for bleeding disorders, then somebody has noticed her bleeding tendency and that's where it starts. So uh, I'm afraid the problem with the diagnostic delay lies before the hematologist. If there's a referral, then of course there will be testing and um, a diagnosis if, if that's uh, found, but um, to recognize bleeding symptoms as a possible bleeding disorder in uh, first-line healthcare, that's the challenge. I think there's more awareness needed there uh, that, for instance, heavy menstrual bleeding is not rarely caused by a bleeding disorder, but rather frequently. And Rizan, your very first work um, at the Royal Free, your first research, I seem to remember, was actually an epidemiological study looking at women going through gynecology clinics and seeing the frequency of those women and the incidence of bleeding disorders among those women. Do you think there has been more awareness raised among your obstetric and gynecology uh, colleagues or are the barriers still the same? Yeah, so it was uh, almost 20 years since that piece of work, uh, Deborah. And I think, of course, we've made some progress, but I think there is still lack of uh, awareness and lack of recognition, uh, not only by the um, primary care, but also by gynecologists. And I probably uh, think among hematologists as well, uh, because actually even in the general population, heavy menstrual bleeding is seen as probably normal because women expect to bleed during menstruation. And especially in the community or families with a bleeding disorder, everybody bleeds, so they don't ask for help. This is to start with. But from the professional point of view, we don't seem to have a, a understanding um, that um, there could be other causes. Uh, and the terminologies are used for these um, gynecological conditions, such as you know, many years ago, luckily uh, we are using it less, menorrhagia, metrorrhagia, that confused people and uh, distracted from uh, 
uh, knowing what is the um, real problem. For example, the word dysfunctional uterine bleeding, given uh, impression it is something dysfunctional or people think it's hormonal. So once they don't find the gynecological cause, then the woman is um, led to suffer and cope with it. But of course, uh, this publication, and especially something like we've done with principles of care that will ultimately increase awareness, more gynecologists are involved and they have interest in the, um, I, we get more referral, as you know, so we, we have a referral from gynecologists, from primary care more and more, but I think still more work needed and education is, is, is really what we need. And education should be start from education of girls and women and their families to know what is normal, what when to ask for help and where to go for help. Education of healthcare professional, what are the symptoms and also realization that how these symptoms impact the quality of life to, so that we take it seriously and um, act upon it and, and uh, uh, want to diagnose and improve care. So uh, also from the hematology point probably is the diagnosis Again, this is not a clear-cut area. Uh, laboratory services are not available everywhere. I don't think there is a clear pathway um, when to refer uh, and what tests to be done. All these things are barriers, but I think we are um, in improving awareness among uh, the, the community of bleeding disorder, uh, patients, societies uh, that support them, and as well as the um, uh, healthcare professionals. Naya, thinking with your advocacy head on, some of the stories that you have heard from people within the community about trying to get diagnosis or uh, trying to get referral, can you think of the consequences of the late diagnosis for those women and uh, what the NMOs and the EHC and wider organisations are doing to raise the awareness? Uh, well, that's two big questions. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the first, when it comes to the late diagnosis, obviously, if you have been meeting healthcare professionals in some capacity who is diminishing your symptoms and not recognising that these are making you suffer, you obviously get confused and might feel a level of stress and anxiety um, and, and also are in a state where you probably have a poor quality of life because you are having bleeds and you don't know how to deal with them. You find your own coping mechanism, but, but that's not ideal. Um, it might impact your social interaction with other people, like in not being able to go to work certain days a month because of premenstrual bleed. You might not want to go to a party, a birthday party. You might not have close relationship as such because you you experiencing bleeding for with a hemimenstrual bleed for maybe three weeks every month, um, and that's not sustainable anyway you get low iron deficiency you get tired and it means that your quality of life is just bad and if you meet healthcare professional not recognizing that and you can't really figure out how to do it, it it's not a desirable situation to be in and when you and when you think about so many ladies might not be diagnosed until they are 20 years old or maybe until after they're giving birth so that might be around the 30 years. That's a lot of years where you have 
potentially have your period and that you've experienced these poor quality of life and and to having to deal with symptoms that you haven't been able to figure out what to do with because there hasn't been that recognition of it so I think the late diagnosis is really a problem for a lot of women and for some women to get a diagnosis become a little bit of a relief because suddenly they get to talk to people that recognize that this is an issue with you for example talk to a hematologist and then you actually get access to some treatment that you didn't know existed and you didn't know could work for you so I think for the late diagnosis is a huge issue it's a huge problem and there's so many horrible stories out there without it uh, about to be diagnosed very late and sometimes too almost too late in life I would say um, so I think obviously the patient who knows that you can have a bleeding disorder, uh, who is usually organized in mem national member organization or organized at a European level, um, they have a huge task to try to identify these people and help these people. It's extremely difficult. It's a lot easier to inform people when you already have them in the organization. Mm -hmm. That's even a problem to educate them when you have them in the organization because there's huge educational gaps. But, but to identify these people outside the whole community of bleeding disorders, not knowing that they have a bleeding disorder is really difficult. And obviously it makes sense to approach the primary sector, but there is also, I would say, a reluctance sometimes from the primary sector healthcare professionals to listen to patient organizations because it becomes this weird power relationship that these patient organizations is coming again, knocking in the doors, and they don't understand that this is just one issue among a thousand issues that they have to deal with. So it can be extremely difficult to go to the contact points where you can actually identify these people. Um, I know some patient organizations have success with going to school nurses or to schools or institutions like that because suddenly you reach out and you help, for example, school nurses to identify if you have a young girl who is start to missing school because of her period. She seems to be more tired than usually. Well, then she might need to get a blood assessment tool to help her to identify whether or not there's an issue. And then she can refer her on to a GP or hemophilia treatment center. So there is like the direct contact to the individual patient or mm -hmm. potential patient that is difficult and, need, and we need to do it in different levels. And then obviously there is the whole collaboration with the healthcare system and see if we can identify, help identify that when a gynecologist or a GP needs to react, what should be flagging if they meet a girl uh, with having no splits, um, or having her period, having bruises that she shouldn't have. So what is happening here and make the connection and then refer them. And sometimes I, I would like to see, and that's probably some economic issues with that, but that you become referred more often than you should in the sense that maybe we refer 10 people and it's only eight of them that they have a bleeding disorder. We're a long way from that. We're a long way from that because it, there seems to be a reluctance to refer people. And it's a shame because you might miss certain so, people from it. Yeah. I guess for all of you, is the reluctance to refer people because not always is it something easily diagnosed in primary care and because sometimes this is about 
quality of life rather than a very obviously deteriorating haemoglobin, declining haemoglobin. You know, um, the first point of call for a, a, perhaps a primary care physician would be to do a full blood count. They might not even do iron stores. So we're kind of battling with a bit of ignorance and also a lack of understanding. Would you think, Karin, that that's true? That because the physical symptoms take quite a long time to have a real physiological effect and it's a, a quality of life effect for many women who have and I use the term loosely but milder bleeding disorders um, although the effect can be very severe. Yeah well I can imagine that that's a barrier to contact uh, your uh, primary care physician in the first place so mm. uh, every woman knows she will start menstruating one day and uh, might have um, and that that's not a very nice thing to do so um yeah uh, that's not easy to go uh, yeah to to a doctor i think with uh, when when that's interfering with your daily life um mm. but actually we don't know how many women do visit their primary care physician and when they do um their guidelines uh, what you're saying about when they have iron deficiency or anemia uh, they just treat this anemia um, and maybe start uh, all anticonception and that's it. They don't do a further investigation. It's, it's not in their guidelines too that they have to do it even when a woman presents with anemia and it's and the, and, the, and she's menstruating. That's, that's the end of it. <laughs> There's nothing needed to do in, the, in their guidelines. Let's just treat it and that's it. So um, I think they should have better guidelines and uh, and, and, and girls and women should be more better educated and, and maybe a school doctor would be a good or education on, on school sexual education maybe should include what is a normal menstruation so that mm. they know and when, when it's not normal and they should visit a doctor and then yeah. the doctor of course also needs a good guideline that, that he or she knows what to test and what to ask uh, to rule out the bleeding disorder. There's a gap, isn't there? So, Rosanne, I know that um, the international gynaecology uh, recommendations are that effectively heavy menstrual bleeding is what the woman or the girl says it is now. That's very much accepted that if it affects her quality of life, then it is heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, but it seems to be taking quite some time for that message to get through beyond primary care and to be helping the women and the girls that we see in, in our services. Are there other things that can be done through the OBS and Gynae route, do you think, to raise awareness? Yeah, I, I, I agree, um, Deborah. So um, the, in, in gynecology societies now, it's all agreed that you don't need to quantify blood loss or to diagnose anemia to take that presentation of a, a young girl or a woman when she suffers from heavy menstrual bleeding. If it's affecting quality of life, we have to act upon it. But in a way that is also affecting uh, our ability to diagnose probably um, underlying bleeding disorders, in my opinion, because people are distracted or going away from assessing how much the blood loss is, whether it's causing anemia or not. And we know that women with bleeding disorder 
actually beyond or in addition i would say to the quality of life there is physically they are having heavy bleeding they're having prolonged menstruation much longer than other women and we've showed in our uh, cohort of patients where we studied uh, in late 90s so i think assessing how much blood loss is there in in, in a semi-objective way it is important for, for, uh, for women with bleeding disorder because they, we know these are the women who have bleeding, heavy bleeding since menstruation started in menarche. They are, they are the ones who pass clots and they suffer uh, a lot. They are anemic. So I think taking the quality of life it's, uh, as, as an indicator for management act, uh, to act upon is important. But in my opinion, uh, we have to look into how much blood loss, what is the menstruation, what are the other bleeding symptoms. That's another issue which we are in the uh, obstetric and gynecological community. We are unaware the concept of asking of whether, what other bleeding symptoms women has. Well, we know that, again, from the, uh, our studies and other studies, that women who will be diagnosed to have bleeding disorder most likely have additional bleeding symptoms. They're the more likely to have postpartum hemorrhage or bleeding after dental extraction. And I think, again, we are in, in, our, in the obstetric and gynecology are becoming more aware about the bleeding score and bleeding assessment tool, uh, but still education needed so that we gynecologists take a good bleeding history in addition to menstrual history, and hopefully hematologists uh, take uh, uh, also a good menstrual history and ask about details of menstruation. Uh, I, you know, I always say that women, especially those who are known or within the families of bleeding disorder, should be regularly, yearly followed up in the hemophilia treatment center, and we should ask them what is your menstruation and inquire thoroughly about their pattern of menstruation. So you've brought me very nicely onto a hot topic of my own, which is that we are dealing with inherited bleeding disorders. And yet time and time again, we either come across a girl or a woman within our clinics who somehow their family hasn't prepared them for, or the clinic hasn't prepared them for menstruation for the fact that they may have a bleeding disorder or in fact that they do have a bleeding disorder. There's no doubt about it. And more than ever, the, the risks of bleeding in carriers of haemophilia seems to be very poorly understood and accepted. And within families, the, the risk of bleeding among carriers seems to have taken a, a perhaps a back seat for many girls and women. Karin, starting with you, what do you think can be done to improve the care of carriers of haemophilia, but generally women within families with bleeding disorders? Yeah, this comes to family education within the haemophilia clinic. We know, of course, when girls will start with their first menstruation. That's an age that we can know at forehand. So we should see them in the clinic and prepare them. For, for example, one of our hemophilia nurses has prepared a, a red box. She has a red box and she sits with these girls and she just explains menstruation, which materials you can use and, and what is the normal menstruation. She gives them this uh, feedback, pictorial, a bleeding assessment charts to assess how much blood loss they have and uh, then they have good education on what they can expect what is normal they don't have to be afraid they know when they have to call the uh, hemophilia treatment center 
And I think all girls who have a risk to uh, have menstrual bleeding because of their bleeding disorder should have adequate counseling and also their parents uh, should be involved so they know that this is coming up and what they have to do, what they need to have in place, pads and uh, panicemic acid tablets, when to call the treatment center. So that, that's, I think, key that it comes to the family education and the education of the girl herself um, within the center. And Naya, what about from the NMO perspective and the wider community? What do you think the role of education for family members who may or may not yet be diagnosed is? I think there's a huge potential to do it even better than many organisations do today. I think there's been a reluctance to talk about the daughters of in particular, severe hemophilia A men. Um, that is all, the, the focus has been very much on them, but not the heritage that they're gonna bring on. And in particular, the daughters, um, there's a huge uh, disagreement actually about when to test the young girls and if they should be tested before they are of any legal age. But if we're talking about 18 years old, will they and they start bleeding with their periods when they're 10 or 11? That's already eight years too late. Actually, there should be more responsibility of the fathers of what is happening to their daughters. And I know that's a bit harsh to say, maybe, but but it's just I'm I'm just very feel very sorry for a lot of the girls where they're a little bit left behind and not get the support they need um, because it's a lot of girls will go to their mothers when they talk about their period and they need to talk about that like their health issues in general but when the disorder is coming from the other side from their dads they need to be involved and they need to help and and help with the education and that's why i think in particular the organization can can be a good place to meet that reluctance to talk about it, to be kind of a neutral place where there's a, an external person facilitating a conversation and, and, and ensure that the information goes across to the entire family about what to pay attention to. And I personally think that it's better to get tested early in life and then you can deal with the results you get. It might not have a huge impact on your life and it might have a huge impact, but having that piece of information can help you navigate and by navigating in the unknowns and wait until you need to bleed yourself through to get treatment that's that seems silly when you actually have the options to go and get that piece of information it's something different when it's a it's an unknown case it can be a mutation or that the family never been diagnosed before but when you have a family that is diagnosed at least with some family members then just get on with it get the information and then you can deal with it. So I think the organization have a huge impact on educating that and, and get across that information. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's that huge split between the fact that there's nothing to stop us doing hemostatic investigations of any family member. It's the, the further debate around the genetic testing and the age around genetic testing and consent but that doesn't stop us investigating anyone for um, any kind of hemostatic defect. Karen did you want to come in there? Yeah uh, there's just there's one caveat in, in this uh, diagnosing eating disorders in carriers especially of hemophilia because they we should test them early after birth so in their first year of life uh, we do that nowadays 
And I think that's a good thing because you want to know if they have mild hemophilia themselves. But they can also have normal levels, but still be still evolve a bleeding phenotype in their uh, life. So they should still be followed if you don't have a genetic diagnosis uh, and you want to defer that until they can decide about that themselves. So you have to make sure that they understand what is a bleeding phenotype, which uh, bleeding symptoms uh, should be a reason to call the hemophilia treatment center and then also they need to be prepared for menarche. And that's a lot of work that goes on with parents and in families with disorders like von Willebrand's for example where um, Rosanne I know you're very familiar with this situation the mother the sister the aunt and the grandmother all have similar symptoms and it becomes normalized within a family they don't necessarily think that they should be seeking help is that something that you would like to change. Yeah, absolutely. But coming back, um, uh, really, I want to give some comments about the carriers because it's very important, as you know, um, Deborah. It's uh, I think uh, the, the name carrier, it is misleading and it's uh, because that gives an impression they just ca carry the mutation, but they don't have uh, bleeding symptoms. And I think um, uh, I'm very glad that also Karen and I think Naya also involved in an initiative through the International Society of Thrombosis Hemostasis that uh, to change uh, the, the terminology. And uh, actually, if, if um, a young girl or a woman has a, a clotting factor which is uh, uh, below normal, um, uh, would be classified as having mild, moderate, or severe hemophilia, like any man would be classified. And Karen just mentioned, even those who have a normal level, they could still bleed, and we've seen that in many studies. And then again, we are proposing a terminology of symptomatic carriers uh, so that people are aware of that. And with, with these terminologies, clear terminologies, I think there will be increased awareness, uh, not among uh, only the health care professionals, but also the families also know that these girls could bleed, they have low factor level, they are symptomatic. And I think uh, you, what you mentioned in von Willebrand disease, you're absolutely right, Deborah. We, we, we've seen sometimes three generations of the same family. And, you know, they all have heavy menstruation. The mother had early hysterectomy, but she thought it's, that's it, it's a fact, and they cope with it. But I think, again, coming back to education, and Karen mentioned that, it's that the duty of hemophilia treatment center, if a woman at least they are diagnosed and the family is known, I think we can do more um, because we know the family and I think the regular review, inquiring about bleeding disorders or the bleeding symptoms, checking their hemoglobins regularly, yearly, why not, to see whether they are uh, anemic, that will help early diagnosis but also increase awareness among the family themselves. And thinking about increasing awareness, Naya, I know that the European Haemophilia Consortium held a women's conference. I think it was the first of its kind. Um, and you were certainly very instrumental in that. How much do you think that events like that go towards increasing awareness and improving access to care and the education that we've all been talking about? Uh, yeah, we had the first conference at a European level in 2019 and 20 was a little difficult and 2021 is also going to be a little difficult, but uh, that's just the world. I think those events have a huge impact actually because it's, 
one thing is that it matters for in particular the women because suddenly they they see that there is a recognition of what they have been dealing with for many many years suddenly that's recognized and they actually get information about how the situation can improve but also from the outside like showing the world that this is an issue I also felt a lot of senior level people who's been in this environment for many years were shocked about what they heard at the conference in terms of the poor quality of life of women, the amount of bleeds they need to go through before getting access to any kind of treatment, mothers borrowing factor concentration from their sons because they are actually mild hemophilia, but they can't get it prescribed because they can't get it in the insurance or the doctors are reluctant to prescribe it to them because they meet a hematologist who thinks they're just victims and they should suck it up and move on with their lives. And I think those stories that suddenly such an event showed the world that these stories are not just women who is not uh, have difficulties coping with it is actually a huge issue and and that we don't have the mechanism in place to support the women we don't have the mechanism in place in the treatment centers i know a lot of doctors usually have this kind of joke with if you ask a hemophilia treatment centers where they have the factor concentrates then they will know exactly where it is if you ask them if they have any sanitary pads or something like that they will have no idea um, and, and that just showcases that sometimes the, even the institutions who are supposed to to take care of the women uh, they are not ready even though they should, they should, we have the issue with the multidisciplinary teams without a gynecologist on board. Uh, what is that about? Um, the principles of care is also highlighting the, the lack of algorithms to, to help support women when they need treatment. And like these kind of things is just showcasing again that an event that can highlight these are issues help create the awareness also internally in a, a, a community that has moved, that moves fast forward with gene therapy, novel treatments, but for specific groups, without including the women, without even recognizing that the women can't even get access to factor concentrate when they're bleeding 12 times a year and have a hemoglobin level that is hardly existing and need blood transfusion is that. There's a complete mismatch between that. So I think the conference did a lot and I'm just really sorry that we haven't been able to do it at such a high level afterwards. But I think it also kickstarted a lot of things. Um, I, I agree how... completely. I do think that. And Karin, picking up on what Naya was saying there, in fact, the principles of care do address in part this issue of equitable treatment and care, don't they? Yeah, definitely. And um, if we... Uh talk about uh, hemophilia and, uh, and people with hemophilia, that should be uh, a term irrespective of gender that, involve, that includes women as well. And that's, that's, what, that's the first statement of the principles of care is that there should be equitable care for all uh, patients with bleeding disorders. And Rosanne, how do you think the principles of care will improve care for women with bleeding disorders? Well, um, Deborah, to start with, it's, it's increased awareness. 
So that's very important because it's, as a principle of care will be distributed and will be published. I think secondly, will empower women uh, when they are aware they are a principle of care to demand or ask for help or access care and hopefully get an equitable access to care. Uh, it would also empower us as clinicians who have interest to, to um, also demand or uh, ask for setting up comprehensive care. And I mentioned that even in Europe, um, uh, one in four of the centers do not have a collaboration between obstetrician and gy gynecologist and the hemophilia treatment center. So this principle of care will make us, uh, uh, we have a power to ask and, and set up such services, uh, multidisciplinary joint clinics. And I think it will also um, would be used by the regulators as, as an auditable standard. I think it will hopefully soon in future. And then when it becomes like that, you know that all the institutions and, and the, the organization will have more interest because they have to meet the standards and then be become obliged to follow the principles of care and adopt it. So hopefully it will make a huge impact to the care of women. And Karin, from an EHAD and an ISTH and a World Federation of Haemophilia point of view, these principles of care are very important. Do you have a feeling for what the next steps should be? I think we should investigate barriers uh, to, implement, to, implement, to implement these principles of care in hemophilia uh, treatment centers and, and make ways to facilitate implementation. So maybe draft uh, a, sort, a sort of flowcharts that can be used easily, educational materials that can be accessed easily. Actually, we, we just contributed to a micro e-learning that's, that's broadly distributed on uh, women and bleeding disorders to raise awareness. So a lot of, of the things are happening. If we can make things easier to implement these guidelines, then uh, the, these principles of care, then they will uh, automatically um, become guidelines and it will be implemented in clinical care. Fantastic. Well, obviously there's still work to do, although so much has been done and so much has really been achieved and from all parts of the community. And that's what's great here. We have different parts of the multidisciplinary team coming together with the uh, affected people within the community and the NMOs and the wider organisations. So I think that that has a collective power in itself to drive the change. Deborah, just to, to mention um, the importance of including women in the international uh, registries and uh, the, the trials of the new treatments, uh, because at the moment, as we all know, that women, and especially pregnant women, are ex excluded from many trials, uh, and uh, the registries, even the, uh, at the local level, carriers do, are not counted, they don't have a card to hold, so that's important that women are recognized as being um, patient, they have a card, they are registered, they're on the database for locally uh, and nationally and internationally. I'd like to thank our guests very much. I'd like to thank all of you who have listened to this podcast and I would encourage you to share it on whichever platform you can uh, to continue to raise awareness about women and bleeding disorders because as you have heard, uh, it's a subject that warrants lots of attention. Thank you.